Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to what I'm going to say is uh, quite a special episode because me and my guest co-hosts are back where the Global Captive podcast all began in March 2019. Seems like a very, very different world and a long, long time ago for some obvious reasons, I think, but we are delighted to be here and this is episode 57 of the Global Captive podcast supported by Legacy Specialist R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. And uh, as I said, we're back where it began. We're back in the R&Q boardroom, which uh, always big thanks to our partners who, who got this off the ground uh, with us from the very, very beginning. And we're joined by Aeon's Kieran Healy. Um, Kieran, when you last came on the pod, it was our first ever episode. You, you haven't been on back since. So I'm not quite sure what, what that means, but you just landed. We just started to go look at the podcast and you had just landed at Aeon. And I'm not really sure either of us really knew what we were doing. So what's changed since then? And <laughs> how are you feeling? <laughs> There's a question, Sarah. I don't think anything's changed. We still don't know what we're doing. No, like the first thing is it's just great to be here. You know, that we're not doing this virtually. Um, and, you know, the signs of life in London is just fantastic to be here. And, and listen, the podcast has gone from strength, strength to strength so um, you know I'll, I'll credit to you yeah and the captain market is going from strength to strength and it, as you say it was, it's great to be back in London I've not been in that much recently we were both here yesterday for a captive review event uh, had a few beers and I was just so happy to see so many captive people you know lots of people that I haven't seen in person for obviously a couple of years so that, that, that was really really good and this is your first trip outside of Ireland, I imagine, for those eighteen months. How did it feel to be back on an airplane? Get your passport out? Yeah, it was it was weird. Like I had travelled so much before the lockdown that I had my, you know, packing for for the travel down to a fine art and then, you know, basically forgot all of that, couldn't find my passport, forgot what to pack, you know, was was about to leave without my laptop, all the kind of basics. Um, and it was almost exciting to see Dublin Airport again, which uh, used to be sort of the opposite. So, yeah, it's good. Good to get out of the little home office for a couple of days. Well, as many listeners will have already seen and read, we released the third edition of the GCP Insights magazine a couple of weeks ago. And we went really big on the topic of ESG, that is the, the rapidly growing importance of environmental, societal and governance issues for, for corporates. And we really got into some, some good detail with, with various parties and, and partners of the podcast, uh, London Capital and our friends in Guernsey as well, about how ESG is relevant to and can be addressed by captives if you haven't checked it out definitely do so but really really central to that whole feature uh, I think we put together about eight pages in total on the topic uh, was an exclusive reveal and introduction of Aeon's green captive concept which seeks to address this ESG issue for captives head-on the link to that magazine uh, which is free to read is on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website but Kieran you've been uh, the man driving this really from inside Aeon and we've been talking about it for months now you and I and we're going to talk for it all now to really kind of maybe fill in some gaps and, and to help people understand what it's all about so maybe as a basic introduction what is the main thinking behind the green captive and, and what is it trying to achieve yeah well uh, in its simplest form develop the green captive framework to address the two main aspects of esg so um the potential volatility that esg is going to pose to companies and also the impact that those companies have on ESG itself. So um, if we just think about that, the framework is a way for organizations to position the captive 
uh, so they can start thinking about how they finance these risks. So it's a fina- financing mechanism. And obviously there's a huge amount of kind of sources of volatility that come out of the whole ESG concern. Um, An obvious example, just to, I suppose, illustrate the point is the transition and litigation risks associated with climate change, for example. So if we can in- incubate those risks now, we know they're coming. We have the capabilities now to sort of analyze these risks and um, you know, get the data and analytics around it, uh, which we can do now. So for those reasons, you know, we start to incubate those risks. You get all the benefits through you know, the, the typical ways you incubate risk in a captive. So pre-fund it, improve the discipline around it. Potentially, over time, maybe it's a non-ramp into risk transfer as well. And this is a this is a concept or approach, isn't it, that, that can be adopted? It's it's not a specific definition of a captive or a specific class of insurer that you're trying to create here. In theory, any captive, existing captive, can move towards this approach over time or start there from from formation if it's a new captive. Yeah, hundred percent. Like essentially, this the green captive is is a principle based framework. So there's a surprisingly long menu of areas you can actually start using a captive when you think about ESG. It's it's, it's actually a lot more than people realise, both on the the asset side and the liability side of the balance sheet. Um, so the the depth and breadth of ESG support a captive can provide is going to be different for for every different organisation. You know, it depends on what industry sector you're in. Uh, obviously, a tech company probably more focused on the social on the S in ESG, whereas you know, oil and gas heavy manufacturing they're probably going to focus more on the e the environmental piece of esg so there's probably a couple of important points just to to, to make as well at this point so first if we think about the direction of travel of commercial insurers um they're factoring esg into how they think about risk Um, and it would be strange and inconsistent if the captive underwriting models didn't sort of start to to converge with that Um, and the second point is like virtually all organizations all multinational corporates have esg very high on their agenda so their activities you know how they do business you know we think about product development their moral compass uh, as organizations it's all getting sort of directed by esg so the captive obviously should start to reflect that as well so the risk profile of those companies is changing so the captive should obviously change with that as well so it the sort of pressure maybe not pressure but at least emphasis from both sides both from the kind of insurance side of things but also within the organization to start using the captive a little bit more in an esg focused way yeah and what i find quite impressive in in the concepts at least is the way it's been thought through so the different elements of emerging risks esg underwriting as you just mentioned investments project funding and are all interlinked and in some respects kind of interdependent i want to focus specifically on on the risks side of this first so when we talk about esg which which emerging risks do you have in mind when it comes to writing policies that have relevance to the group's ESG objectives and, and exposures. Yeah, on the risk sides, if you read any of the UN principles for sustainable insurance reports, it would frighten the life out of you, really. Climate change, rising sea levels, plastic pollution, degradation of the sea and land resources. So as a form of volatility on the balance sheet of a corporate, um, it's potentially the largest single category of risk that the community's ever had to, to tackle. Um, the, the risks are obviously very widespread and you know, unavoidable. So a couple of quick examples. Um, we can model climate change now so that the likelihood of the reduction of an asset value or a loss event if a weather trend continues, um, we can model that now. So if we have these sort of analysis available. As risk managers, we really ought to be asking the, the what if questions um, and how do we 
protect the balance sheet from, from these sources of volatility. So this introduces the whole concept of transition risks in a material way. But the other example, you know, plastic pollution, the litigation risk is already starting to materialize. And any organization that's involved in the proliferation or the downstream genesis of, of, of plastics, uh, in other words, anyone who produces plastic could see some sort of class action type lawsuit on the horizon. It's already starting to happen. So, you know, again, it talks to the fact that we need to start thinking about this from a risk financing perspective and really put the discipline around that now. Yeah, it's really interesting. And what you've mentioned, obviously, litigation a few times now and in a separate project I'm working on all about DNA, which will become clearer in a few months time. We just just had a big conversation about ESG and litigation risks concerning DNO in the United States. And you and I have had the conversation before that it seems like in the UK and Europe, this conversation around ESG is much more advanced and there's obviously reporting requirements. Now they are coming down the line and the SEC has has basically made it clear, although not officially announced, I think they're in comment period about what kinds of closures they're going to want to have around ESG. And that goes into things like DNI uh, as well. And ESG isn't just the environment though, as, as you've kind of mentioned already, and we are hearing that underwriters are beginning to bring up and examine ESG performance in, in renewal discussions. And in a recent Emit Talks podcast episode I produced with BT Group Insurance Director Tracy Skinner and Swiss Re's Melanie Slack, we did actually touch on how ESG is entering renewal negotiations now. So let, let's just briefly hear a snippet of what Tracy had to say there. So Tracy, what does you, the risk manager, insurance buyer, think of this drive from insurers to take a stance on ESG? And, and are you already hearing it come up in, in your own renewal discussions with insurers? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just this week, Richard, we were planning um, our DNO renewal presentation to the market, which we do every year in October. And ESG is topic number two after finance. So that's that's just uh, gives you sort of you know, and last year it wasn't on the agenda at all. Yeah, wow. So that just shows you the change. Yeah, and we we understand it and we really welcome it because we are doing exactly the same in terms of our supply chain. So you know we are very interested in uh, as a buyer and uh, making use of suppliers we are very interested in understanding where those suppliers are on their ESG journey so you know, just to share a couple of things with you about BT which really excite me I mean we have the largest fleet in the UK outside of the Royal Mail okay and we are already trying to drive no pun intended the electric you know, vision through that fleet by working very collaboratively with other large fleet providers and the manufacturers to see what they can do to tailor their needs to our fleet in terms of the electric conversion. We've already been working, you know, we were, again, we're one of the largest consumers of power in the UK with all of our data centers, and we're already moving quite very close to having everything that we is provided via power source on a renewal by renewable basis, which is really you know interesting. But this is kind of some of the ESG agenda is really baked into us. So if you look at diversity and inclusion on gender, I think it was actually about 25 years ago that BT moved to a huge drive to get the gender balance um, within the organization right. 
Um, and it was something I noticed as soon as I joined BT. But more, the action that we took was to work really, really hard to get mothers back to work after the birth of their first child. And this has really turned the corner for us and getting uh, females into senior management positions. So, you know, that, that for us is just business as usual. And that was you know, 25 years ago. So we really welcome an opportunity to share with our uh, insurance suppliers what we're doing in this space because we think we've got a very good story to tell. That that last point there, Tracy, uh, regarding the kind of diversity and inclusion is really interesting because obviously when we talk about ESG, and I'm guilty of this as much as anyone, it's so common that we all focus on the E uh, of, of the ESG. And of course, there is the, the, the societal and, and governance part of that as well. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. And I just want to ask you an extra question there, Tracy. Is the idea when it comes to discussions with insurers, and of course, this is not the reason that BT are putting these these practices in place, but is the idea that when you're having these discussions, say on your DNO renewals or, or other renewals, and the ESG question is asked, if you can demonstrate these actions and these practices, then that should make the real renewal discussion a bit easier. Yeah, exactly. And we have the discussions obviously elsewhere within BT. So our investor relations team are fronting this issue with, say, you know, our investors. And so, you know, it is a regular conversation. So it is really easy for us to sort of, you know, go into the deeper dive that the insurance are looking for and yes you know we, we we really hope that it you know that it helps the conversation that it helps plot us in terms of our journey um on on the scale that the insurers are looking at in terms of what represents success and, and what represents something else Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent, or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Kieran Healy of Aon. Before the break, you heard from BT Group's Tracy Skinner, and I thought some really interesting comments on how ESG is really entering their renewal discussions and how they're starting to deal with that as a group. That interview with Tracy and Melanie Slack of Swiss Re discusses ESG further, but also several other issues, including the hard market and digital transformation. And of course, we, we got a few mentions of, uh, of captives in there as well, as you'd expect. So I do recommend you give it a listen. Just search for Airmic Talks in your podcast app of choice or follow the link in these episode show notes. 
So, Kieran, from from what you're hearing then from your your broker colleagues and, and clients, what is is what Tracy says there about ESG increasingly coming up in that underwriting in, in that renewal discussion? Sorry, is that sounding familiar? Yeah, definitely. Um, we're hearing the London market insurers are starting to move away from any kind of coverage for climate change related risks. Um, so you think about that, it's a double impact really. On one hand, the ESG impact is starting to, to kind of be factored into existing risks and how they price it, but then they're also not going to cover any future climate-based risks. So obviously that's going to leave an awful lot of organizations very exposed. So often the insurance buyer, we, we talk about this a lot, we probably have talked about it on the podcast before, often the insurance buyer will go to their captive for kind of you know, some kind of relief from the commercial market or for uh, pricing consistency. But one of the key tenets of the green captive, Kieran, is actually to follow this this, this increasing ESG underwriting principle uh, from the commercial underwriters to, to some degree. So why do you think that it is important for the captive to kind of get on board with the way that this is going with commercial insurers and, and how will that ultimately benefit the parent group? Yeah, two reasons. From a premium pricing perspective, obviously it's more accurate to capture the, the the, the true risk um, and ESG is in there so it should be it should be priced in accordingly but also it's from a behavioural point of view and really what the green captive is trying to do in terms of I suppose change behaviours and, and, and drive ESG betterment so a simplistic example if pro- property premiums consider let's say carbon impact for example well then the business will directly see the impact of reducing its carbon footprint to reduce premiums in, in the allocation process and then that what, what that'll do is also feed into the overall story the organization is telling about the journey that it's on so it's really trying to you know again probably only in an accretive or small way but help use the captive to push ESG betterment behaviours throughout the entire organisation. Yeah, I was going to ask you a little, a little extra question on that actually, Kieran, because we haven't talked much about that kind of project financing and, and using the captive to take, not just to reflect the ESG performance of, of the parent group in the underwriting, but then to also uh, encourage that ESG betterment. So how, because we, we hear, for example, we've had, let's take Vodafone, for example, because they've discussed it on the podcast before. Vodafone famously they use their risk bursaries from the captive to, to and this is not ESG related specifically to help finance to help uh, fund the better risk management of the group to hopefully then reflect premiums and, and losses of, of the captive so you're saying that the same principle can be taken to fund ESG betterment initiatives in, in various ways obviously it depends from company to company what those ways might be yeah that's it exactly you know from a risk perspective if we address the ESG aspect you're going to reduce the risk as we talked about that that ESG risk is starting to get priced in you can use the captive then therefore legitimately to start funding some of these projects and you know again the, the range of projects that a captive could get involved in is kind of wide ranging and obviously specific to each organisation but a number spring to mind you know very simplistic examples would be you know reducing carbon footprint could we start installing solar panels and roofs and things like that so you know yeah using the captive bursaries drive performance from an ESG perspective is, is one of the key bits of this. So we, we've mentioned that obviously ESG is more than just the E part, more than just the environmental part, but it is called the, the green captive. And so my immediate thought is, you know, what, what kind of role do heavy industry such as coal or, or oil and gas companies have in this? And, you know, would they be excluded from the concept? I mean, or could the green captive play an important role in, in their own transformation of any company's transformation on this journey? 
Yeah, you could argue that the the companies in that sector actually need this sort of sort of a, a solution more than anybody else, really. And um, these are the organisations with the greatest exposure to transition and litigation risks um, that will need financing. So if they can use this framework then to help improve their ESG impact, even if only a little, well, that would be great. And I guess it's about betterment it's not suggesting that the green captive is going to turn companies green yeah but if it helps them get from bad to a little bit less bad we should be encouraging that and particularly on 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 the coal uh, for example we know that that's the kind of industry where insurance is becoming a massive problem right there are carriers uh, swiss re have been public about putting out of uh, certain types of of coal uh, not wanting to insure that risk and um, insure those companies who are involved in that in that kind of activity so the captives are going to become really important in terms of looking for alternative and financing solutions and helping them maybe bring those insurers back to the table yeah and if we think about what's going to happen in that in that kind of a dynamic the captive is going to get more premium going through it it's going to have more capital in it because it's going to be taking more risk that the the market just can't take so if those assets in the captive can be used you know in the ways we spoke about earlier or invested in esg aligned investments obviously that's that's going to play out better in terms of the story that that organization is trying to tell and from early discussions with with some insurers you know this sort of a concept may make it a little bit easier for them to have discussions about picking up their underwriting pens again yeah because they ultimately and maybe it's a little bit different in this current market environment but ultimately they do want to write that they want to be putting out of certain sectors of business anyway we're going to move on but that's been really good discussion and as i said uh people that want to read more about uh, the aon green captive concept uh, do check out the latest edition of the gcp insights magazine go to globalcaptivepodcast.com click the gcp insights tab or follow the link in the episode description as i said free to download or, or read on our e-reader so really do recommend that as as further reading we shouldn't leave though uh kieran without touching on a few other topics aon's 2021 captive benchmarking survey was released a few weeks ago as as ever there is loads of great data and insight to get stuck into with this report and i do recommend listeners to check that out we'll put another link to that in the episode show notes as well but a few headline figures i'll just put out here to to set up a bit of context for the chat since 2018 aon has seen a 73 percent increase in premium retention among captives under their management including a 361 percent increase in property damage and business interruption retentions and a 26 percent increase in general liability retention so following a and what we've all been talking about for a few years during this hard market. Cyber has seen a 650% increase in captive premium over the last five years, which is obviously huge. Environmental premium uh, on topic up 400% since 2018. And Aon's White Rock Group, which is the group of cell companies, experienced a 24% growth in sales between 2019 and 2020. So I think nothing nothing hugely surprising there because we've all been hearing that captives are writing more risk, the captive owners have been coming on the podcast people like yourself on the podcast the last couple of years kieran have been saying captives are writing more premium than ever before um there are also some some deep dives into different industry sectors which which threw up maybe a few more surprises for me uh kieran obviously you're as as close as can be to the the aeon's client portfolio but were there any particular findings in in the report that really piqued your interest or, or surprised you yeah, I wouldn't say surprise, but but certainly interesting. I think there's a lot of different insights can be read from from the data. Um, obviously, the good news from our perspective is is growth in numbers. I think the depth and the breadth of captive usage is increasing. So by that, I mean deeper retentions, more retentions, and actually more lines going into captives. The number of inquiries and the number of feasibility studies we're doing is has increased markedly. Um, it shows that you know the interest in these figures will actually 
be compounded when we look at this again next year but from an industry perspective i agree i think that's probably where the most interesting insights can be read and it's kind of aligns what aon is doing we're trying to take an industry-led approach um, and i think you know when we can go to clients and, and show them what others in their industry are doing it's obviously a much more meaningful conversation so so i think um you know some very interesting things on an industry industry perspective to be read out of out of that report and there are and some good regional analysis as well in the report too and whenever i talk to yourself and other captive consultants i know you're all absolutely swamped uh, at the moment with those new captive inquiries and, and feasibility studies as, as you said before and also work on existing captives who maybe are, maybe they're changing manager maybe they're looking to restructure the captive or, or, or take a whole new approach. We know there's a lot of that going on at the moment. We will see the formation numbers at the end of the year, uh, I think, and, and I expect we'll see some good growth again in, in Europe. But in regards to Europe particularly, how, how much of, of this interest is really materialising into, into new formations? Would you expect, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like Guernsey and Luxembourg are getting the lion's share over the last 18 months. Is that kind of the way you see it going? Yeah, it is. Um, Guernsey and Luxembourg are certainly where we are forming more than any other locations in Europe. We are seeing formations in the other other jurisdictions as well. Um, you know, talking to some Swedish organisations that are going to set up locally in Sweden and obviously um, Malta, particularly from a cell perspective, is extremely busy. I think one of the reasons for that is in Europe, the still the barrier to entry is still quite a bit much more high than it is in the US. Um, and so a cell is, is, is kind of being utilized in that regard. So that for that reason, if you look at our analysis, we actually have better growth in cells in Europe than we do in the US. And that's that's kind of a little bit of that is the, is the, the regulatory environment that, that we're in. So you're not setting up any captives yet in Italy or, or France or Spain or, or England even, as, as we're hearing all of these countries now are really interested in wanting to uh, get, get involved in the captive game. No, um, no, it, it is a discussion point. Um, actually, working with an Italian organization at the moment and, you know, we're factoring that into the feasibility. But, you know, I, th- I think the rationale for the full outsource model in the traditional domiciles is still quite strong. Um, you know, there are benefits to setting up, I guess, locally, but there are also risks that get introduced through that. So, you know, it, it's a bit of a trade-off and I guess it's the prioritization yeah. uh, within the organization, but we're still seeing our growth in the traditional domiciles. As you said, Guernsey, Luxembourg, they're the kind of mainstays of Europe and they're the ones seeing the most growth. Yeah, yeah, really, really looking forward to seeing the numbers at the end of the year. And I also know of quite a few, I said the same thing last year as well at this time of the year. I also know of quite a few big captives in the process of getting set up or in the feasibility study stage, but it looks like they'll happen. And that's, that's, they're not going to get done by the end of this year, some, some of those. So I think this, this trend during this market cycle, I think the, the European domiciles uh, in this case will continue to see the benefit of this, this kind of surge in captive interest for a couple of years yet, even after I think the, the market has softened. Well, Kieran, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you back on the podcast and back in the uh, R&Q boardroom um, and thank you to Tracy Skinner of BT Group as well as I said do check out that full um, Talks episode we don't usually kind of uh, combine those those two podcasts but I thought because of the comments Tracy made and because of the, because of the ESG topic we're focusing on today I thought it was relevant to, to, to bring those in and uh, if you've if you've found interesting what Kieran's talked about today and, and the ESG topic in general when you haven't heard our other recent episodes we had uh, London Capital we had Christy L and Shadrach 
Aquaza talking about how they see the ESG investing, the captive investment side. We had our friends at We Are Guernsey and the Guernsey International Insurance Association talking about their new um, ESG accreditation um, and ESG framework for, for insurers and captives in Guernsey. So, so do check that out as well. We'll, we'll whack all those links in the episode uh, description as well. But thank you, Kieran. Great to uh, great to see you. And I think we're going to have some lunch now. Yeah, looking forward to it. And thanks for thanks for letting me back on. Yeah, it's been uh, been a long time coming. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.